0: FIS Castaway, the podcast keeping you in the know about the shipping and commodity world. To keep up to date, sign up to our FIS Live app at www.fis-live.com or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Welcome back to Castaway, FOS's Freight and Commodity Podcast. It's Wednesday the 30th of June and this week I am joined of course by Theo and we do have a special guest this week, Alex Moore, who's a cross-commodity broker but specialising in emissions. So this week we're going to be having our usual market updates on our main markets and then having another bit of an update on what's happening in the carbon emissions space. So let's start with the news, go into the indexes and then a bit more in-depth before our special Emissions feature. So, what has happened this week in the news? Well, South Africa's former president, Jacob Zuma, has been sentenced to 15 months in jail for corruption. Uh, The G7 global tax deal hangs in the balance as holdout nations, that's China, India, Eastern European nations, and emerging nations put up resistance to a global deal. China is gearing up for the Communist Party's 100th birthday. Uh, The UK financial watchdog banned the crypto exchange Binance from operating in the UK. U.S. banks are preparing for a large buyback spree after they passed stress tests. Uh, Coal futures in China tumbled after a senior government official predicted that a rise in supply would weaken prices as concerns over power shortages arise across the country's southern manufacturing area. And after last night's drama, football is slightly more likely to be coming home. So let's uh, go into our indexes then in terms of oil and products. Brent, we've seen uh, a little bit of a rise uh, closing 7507 Last night, uh, that's up 0.5%. On the uh, high sulfur fuel oils, that's the Rot 3.5% and the Sing 380. We've seen rises to 1.6% up on the Rotterdam 404 spot 0.5 above 400 level comfortably now. Sing 380 415.55 up 1.3%. Uh, 0.5%. Less of a rise, uh, 0.8% on the rot 0.5 at 5.13.90. These values are, of course, Tuesday 22nd versus Tuesday the 29th. And on the SING, 0.5 at 0.6%, 5.32.65. And on the high fives, that's the difference between the very low sulfur fuel oil and the high sulfur fuel oil. Uh, 110 closing, rot 117 SING, both slightly down. Uh, On the freight indexes, uh, we've seen a nice little rise. Um, moving up nine point three percent on the Cape Five TC up to thirty four two nine nine, and the Panamax Four TC thirty four seven five one up seventeen point five percent. But Theo, what about the iron ore indexes?
1: On the iron ore week on week, the Platts sixty two index yesterday was at two hundred fourteen dollars ten, which up a dollar forty or zero point six six percent week on week. The Fast Market sixty five percent was two hundred forty nine dollars ten, which is down only ten cents. Which is just negative 0.04% week on week. And the uh, Fast marker 65 versus the plat 62 spread uh, settled at $35, which is down $1.50 or 4.11% week on week.
0: Cool. And on the tankers, we've seen a little rise on TC2 114.44 up 2%, and then drops on all the others. TC5 down 6.4%, 82.50. T3C, the VLs down uh, 0.4%, 3218 And TD25, 70, down 0.3%. And Alex, to finish us off, where are we seeing the uh, European emissions pricing at the moment?
2: Well, EU ETS futures uh, closed yesterday on the 29th at €55.64. Well.
0: We're breaking through that fifty dollar level. I remember that Bloomberg story of uh, rising, <laughs> and then what happens when the the European Greens get into power and they automatically put that to seventy five. But let's <laughs> let's leave that for later on. Uh, in terms of our main products, let's uh, dive in on the the oil and products of what we've seen. So a nice little rise at the end of of last week with Brent pushing above that seventy six level uh, on Friday. Uh, crude prices are hovering around their highest level since October two thousand and eighteen, if you can remember back that far. Uh, and there's this kind of demand complex for oil continues to improve with vaccine rollouts and they hope that things return back to normal, especially for travel on land, air and sea. Uh, for the the spreads that we're seeing, one of the ones we've definitely focused on is the FOGO, the fuel or gas oil spreads, which is used to price that very low sulfur fuel oil. And that has seen a significant strengthening since our last podcast on the uh, 23rd. Uh, Singapore was 67 minus 67.75 and rot minus 92. And we're now seeing that price in yesterday at six minus sixty-one fifty and minus eighty-five fifty. So that's seven bucks moves on the on the Rotterdam uh, was at six or so on the uh, Sing. So some significant movements there, which will see a strengthening 05 percent price compared to uh the the equivalent gas ores on that. The EIA, we've been focusing on that in terms of what we've seen in, for predicting US stock levels, uh, minus 7.6 million barrels, what we came in on last week. And again, we saw actually a, a draw in gasoline and a build on, on the product of distillates. So slightly different from the the weeks that we've seen, but that would have been five consecutive weeks uh, of draws on the crude level. So significant drawdowns there to produce those products. Um, it seems that also now drawing down on gasoline. The EIA has confirmed that uh, what the market saw—the the API that we were talking about last week—but uh, if you look again at this week's prediction, they came out last night. The API crude has predicted that it will be a minus 8.15 million barrel draw, and again, uh, we're seeing builds in products, uh, but also a build in gasoline. Point two four one on the uh, the gasoline builds predictions. So, again, that would be six consecutive weeks of drawdowns in that crude and slight builds on some of those products. So it seems there's continuing trend of what's happening in the U.S. and they may need uh, a lot more crude than, than normal. So definitely looking a bit more bullish and continuing picture uh, in the U.S. Uh, the Joint Ministerial Monitoring Committee for, for OPEC was scheduled to have a meeting today, but they have pushed that later from uh, a Russian request. So it'd be good to see probably next podcast what comes out of that, if anything. Uh, but the general outlook for oil is is looking fairly decent uh, with these uh, rollouts that we've had here in the US is going very well as well. Um, OPEC Plus is holding its production at 6.2 million barrels per day uh, below o- October 2000 levels. And it, you have that whole plan to tape this into uh, opening up of, of, of the economies and we'll be allowing more production as we, we get better on things. Uh, Technically, if you're looking at this, this is obviously a report done by our technical analyst Ed Hutton. Um, market is technically risk off, uh, but then we have the OPEC meeting around the corner, which he's highlighting and uh, and just market is just taking profits in preparation of that meeting. If the futures rise alongside aggregate open interest and volume after that meeting, then make all systems go for a significant move upwards again. So definitely start to keep an eye on those those metrics and whether this is going to be the start of a new bullish move. Uh, one thing to highlight again this week is what's been happening in the US. If you have a look at uh, what was such a significant oil producing region for uh, the, the 2017 to 2020 levels uh, of rig counts. So the past 12 months, U.S. crew prices have doubled, but the number of operating rigs, uh, just 373 last week, according to Baker Hughes' data, and is well below recent levels of uh, numbers of, of operating oil rigs. So if you look at, for example, 2015, 2014, you are looking at a range of 1400 to 1600 in terms of number of rigs. And now we're looking at just 373 below that 400 level, uh, a level not seen since mid 2016 uh, into 2017. So still significantly low. Uh, oil production is down 15% on last year's record high of near three, 13 million barrels a day. So. It doesn't seem that the prices are recovered enough to allow the U.S. market to significantly improve on its production base. Uh, So this is going to be a time, I guess, for OPEC to make hay, um, coming into a a situation where more oil is going to be needed as uh, economies unlock and the demand increases. Um, Another story developing has been natural gas supplies uh, and prices in, in Europe, which has been driven to a 13 year high by uh, limited supplies and, I guess, all the geopolitics which has been happening with from supplies from Russia into Germany as well. But uh, looking pretty rosy if you're a producer going into this, um, less so in terms of the US, which I think have been more focusing on returning capital to uh, to investors than necessarily ramping up production there. But uh, Theo, I don't know if you want to give us an outline of what we're seeing a bit more in depth on the Iron office.
1: Okay. Um, I, the iron ore markets this week, I'll probably focus a little bit more on the, uh, on the spread between 65 and 62. Last week we saw it hit a historic $36 per metric tonne spread and as I said uh, prior that the uh, spread remained strong and wide at about $35 per metric tonne. To put it in perspective, last year's spread uh, peaked at $19 and 2018 peaked at $28. So you can see that spread is widening quite considerably and probably has even more room to move. Um, Because this highlights actually China's push to reduce carbon emissions in the steel industry, and it also is accelerating the demand for better quality iron ore, which can lift production efficiency and, you know, cut pollution. So there is a risk that China could roll out more steel output restrictions in the coming months to meet these emission reduction goals. So, you know, there could be, in the 65, should remain quite stable, but there could be some downside risk in the second half of the year, I feel, uh, on the 62. And traders really need to stay abreast of this policy developments in China. The curve really hasn't moved much in terms of shape and backwardation, but uh, it seems that the back end might have, people might be trying to lean on it. So I was thinking about this, thinking a sound strategy for traders, I would consider, would be, especially if you have a long position in the front end, Is probably looking at more downside protection in Q4 in possibly forms of... Uh, uh, puts buying puts. I mean, volatility currently is at around fifty percent historical thirty-day uh, volatility, but the uh, the two four volts that I've noticed are at the money around thirty-eight to forty percent, which is a discount. So uh, that's the way I see it. Anyway, from the physical side, premiums um, of July and August delivery mainstream finds remain pretty steady and pretty much unchanged. And uh, end users are preferably procuring on an on on-need basis. But there are, though, I've been told, a lack of spot market offers. Some small-scale steel mills are looking at reducing the usage of uh, Pilbara fines and using a blending, blending pattern on cost concerns and replacing with like less expensive uh, medium-grade fines such as uh, MAC fines and Bar fines. So, I mean, the issue here is that both the linear and silica impurities in iron ore may become a bigger issue for steelmakers, especially if authorities place further restrictions due to pollution and emission targets. Which is why, again, low alumina, no low silica Brazilian finds are in demand, and that spread between sixty-five and sixty-two still remains high. Uh, finally, what I've seen is that the weekly Australian iron ore shipments have been a little disappointing through June, which has created a tightness uh, in the global supply-demand balance and not to mention, of course, the revolving door of incidents that occur in Brazil, and that's uh, in, that's created a tightness in, quote, medium to high-grade iron ore.
0: Thanks to you. I mean, we have seen a lot of talk on those reductions of, of production figures, or at least in terms of emissions in China. That's been happening for quite a long time. Do you think that actually these new ones potentially could have a more, more of an impact, or is this just more of the same that could just build on each other and cause a little bit of tightness in the market? No,
1: I do think there could be some impact. Uh, It seems like globally there is pressure uh, in a lot of different sectors regarding reducing emissions and and, uh, introduction of targets and long-term targets. So I think China is getting more serious about it. Um, In the short term, also, uh, you you mentioned uh, initially that they they do have their 100-year anniversary, and that does meaning they do like to have the blue skies out for those sort of events. So that also would, uh, would hold, keep firm the uh, higher grade ores if, and also uh,
0: there would be some sort of restrictions on uh, production. So good news for Brazilian miners, definitely. Yeah, always. Uh, then that leads us nicely onto a little bit of view into the dry market. Technically, uh, we've got some, a little bit of insight in terms of the Capes, uh, it was a good index for the Capes uh, yesterday, up uh, $951 nine, to $34,299, uh, giving some so- small support to the July futures. Prices are low, but only by $425 bucks, uh, from uh, last night, meaning the disparity gap between the index and the futures is now sitting at around $3,000. Uh, Focus has switched the Orkish contract, which opens below the Davy pivot. Uh, that was forty-two. dollars 225. Uh, Warning, the intraday technical picture was weak. So the rolling front month chart was a bearish window up to 42,250. So if the futures roll uh, put August above this level, there would be supported uh, a bull argument. But at this point, uh, the gap remains open, leaving the technical vulnerable to a further Back so watch that contract there. Tomorrow's pivot point so today uh, is looking at uh, forty one four one six. So unless there's a shift in momentum to that bull side, uh, we could have another week open on the August today. Uh, on the Panamax, uh, also a rise uh, on the on the index that we had uh, up to thirty four seven five one, and the July futures were up to thirty six one six five last night. Uh, like the Capes, there's a gap disparity gap. Uh, is at a comfortable level for futures roll in the morning, uh, this morning. Uh, The August contract is flat to small down on their day, with price continuing to show a minor divergence with the RSI. Interestingly, we have seen a confirmation of that dark cloud uh, cover, candlestick pattern highlighted, uh, if you were aware of the technical from the day before, suggesting we continue to see support at these levels. So tomorrow's pivot will be, today, you're going to be looking around the level 36.208 for the August uh, closing the day at thirty six six seven five. In theory, we should see a bullish open, so it'd be good to see where we move uh, for the re- rest of the this morning on that market, suggesting market buyers might try push the futures above the thirty seven level and negate that dark cloud. So, it does seem pretty. Uh, strong in terms of that Cape market and the Panamax moving forward. Good indexes that we had last night. Uh, we may see, as outlined in the index, uh, in the technical, the pullback on, on the Cape market because of that pivot point. But uh, all definitely looking at those August levels to see where we move today going forward. But it does seem that we can see a little bit more of a wise going forward. But we will have this lordship carry back next week uh, to give us a bit more of an update of what we've had in terms of actually behind that rather than necessarily just looking at the technical picture. But after that, we're obviously going to be moving on to our main feature of today's podcast, and that's looking at an update of what's happening in the carbon emissions market, carbon emissions space. So we did have a first podcast talking at shipping emissions, a little bit of an introduction, but this is such a fast-paced moving area and a lot of change happening that we've already had things, uh, new developments, which we need to highlight to all of our listeners on this and we have Alex who's going to be giving us uh, his insight of what's happening and of course all the rest of us will be playing it as well but Alex I don't know if you want to give us just for those who've had no experience and going and listening to this podcast and going what you want about carbon emissions that's quite common <laughs> yeah exactly so if you could give us a little bit of introduction you know, what is a carbon contract carbon emissions contract and why would you use it
2: yeah um well, firstly, obviously, great to be on the podcast for the first time, but the carbon space obviously huge, but also quite messy at the same time. Um, there's a lot to look at. Everyone's getting involved, um, but at the same time, it can be quite confusing. Um, but the crux of it, what is a carbon contract? It, essentially, a carbon contract is a financial instrument that represents the price per tonne of CO2 emissions.
0: And this, of course, Alex, has been led by... This general move of governments, pressure groups and everyone towards what, you know, green economy and trying to do that. Um, and one of the main areas that have, have obviously implemented this kind of contract is the European Union, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Biggest uh, trading scheme out there. Um, I mean, largest by volume as well. I mean, the value rose by 30%, uh, 169 billion in uh, 2019. Um, so it's a real focus for both the compulsory and the voluntary markets. Uh, compulsory obviously being the, uh, you have to get involved, those um, uh, companies or organizations that emit a lot of carbon. They have a quota placed on the, the or cap, um, placed on how much emissions they can tra- uh, emit per year. Uh, and in the voluntary market as well, where you can be involved, if you want to be involved, to become a green company, um, to buy permits uh, from, say, uh, I don't, rainforests or anyone's producing a green output you can buy voluntary carbon offsets from them uh to essentially become a green um company it's it's a huge market um and uh, loads are looking at it especially the eu ets which um there's a few things that are coming out of it which i'm sure we'll come on to later in the podcast
0: yeah i guess give people a kind of context to all of this in terms of global emissions i don't know if you want to sort of put what these numbers that people keep spouting out uh, of millions of x and billions of y uh, actually means in terms of the global regional and then perhaps by sector so you kind of get a feel to what scale this is
2: yeah i mean I, I'm, I'm sure you've heard before carbons on the rise um i mean in 2019 the world basically emitted 300 oh, 34.2 billion tons of carbon dioxide i mean that's very hard to, to figure out what is that a lot? Is, is it not? I mean, obviously, it's on the rise. Um, China being the largest, 9.8 billion tons. USA being the second largest, 5 billion tons. Um, I mean, if we, if we break that down a little bit further, um, in terms of sectors, it, it mainly comes from like, the energy sector, use of, buildings equates to 17.5 uh, percent of emissions i mean the production of electricity lighting appliances cooking heating at home that's that's the crux of where most of this carbon uh, is, is produced um if you break down further agriculture 19 percent of all carbon that's, that's where it comes from forestry land use um 18 of total greenhouse emissions I mean, the majority of that comes from agricultural soils and the production of nitrous oxides and livestock manure, uh, methane from agriculture. And that's five percent. I'm not sure you've saw in the news recently. Um, it was on BBC last week about having to reduce agriculture because of the the methane production. Um, there's so many avenues, and angles, and 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 ways that carbon is produced, but the main source comes from energy and and agriculture.
0: Yeah, and the main point of Having this contract is to help this transition to what people claim as a you know, green economy uh, by, an effect, making it too costly to emit too much.
2: Essentially, it's a cap-and-trade system. The EU has control over supply, uh, making it too costly to, uh, to produce it. This time last year, EU ETS futures prices were trading around $22. Now it costs $55. Um, yeah, essentially making it too expensive to produce. So the only way to uh, cut your costs is to, to cut your carbon.
0: And I don't know if I want to go through a, a very specific example. So I know that we've actually worked on a kind of white paper outlining. So, for example, you're a European steel mill. and This is a very specific for European-based european, european based companies who are in sectors which are outlined by the European Union, who are polluting sectors, which are covered by it. So it's not for everyone, but there are very specific sectors who have to be part of this program. as compulsory. So you're a steel mill and you're, you've been told you have, have to take part in this, this program. What, what's the kind of process very basically through the thinking of how it works?
2: Yeah, I mean, building off your example, uh, you're a steel mill uh, and the European Union basically allocates you a certain number of emission contracts per year. Um, The sum of these contracts allows you to emit a maximum number of carbon emissions per year. Uh, Basically, if you went over this number, you'd have to purchase more uh, in the ETS market um, to cover the extra carbon output um, at basically a financial cost uh, to yourself. By contrast, if a steel mill has implemented environmental measures in its industry processes to reduce carbon, uh, it will not use all of its EUAs. Um, Essentially, they would be able to sell these extra allowances into the market um, to those that require extra allowances. You are basically rewarding your emission compliance and overperformance in reducing emissions.
0: And this is something which, in terms of the EUAs, if anyone is out there who's looking to get involved in this, they can contact uh, FIS and you, Alex, to be able to to trade this, can't they? Absolutely, yeah. So bring it to being FIS and our kind of customer base, a large proportion of that is obviously based in shipping. And Theo, you pointed this out uh, when we were starting conversations before we started the podcast, that actually shipping is going to be something that's going to have to start to think about this because they've got twenty January 2023 is going to be the day, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it seems like it. This, I mean, really, there's been some leaked draft that's out, outlining the uh, expansion of the carbon pricing for shipping. Uh, building and road transport, and they, they're saying that shipping will be required to comply with the emissions cap as of 2026, with a phasing period between 2023 to 25. So, uh, and the scope will include emissions from incoming voyages and emissions occurring at birth in the EU ports. So that's going to be an interesting one: how they how they measure that and assess and develop that. Uh,
0: Exactly. It's going to be complicated for people who are coming into EU waters and those who are operating, I mean, less difficult for those who are operating completely within port to port, EU port to EU port. But yeah, no, once coming in, it's going to be uh, a significant step change for those operations uh, for that, especially the fact that there's European Union as a, a large importer, uh, about two thirds of goods, I think we outlined in our last podcast. But Alex, to bring it back to 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 you and uh, talk about shipping specifically. I mean, this is a, a large industry, sixty thousand vessels or so, various sizes worldwide. And the IMO is obviously pushing its uh, agenda as per a lot of other government organisations. You've got twenty thirty and twenty fifty targets that's trying to do. Twenty thirty uh, is forty percent reduction and seventy percent reduction uh, from two thousand eight levels by twenty fifty. But uh, I don't know if you give us a little bit of uh, a context. We went through global emissions uh, from 2019 um, and kind of comparing that to to shipping. We had 34.2 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide in 2019 globally. Mm -hmm. uh, But what about shipping specifically?
2: Yeah, Um, like you say, the IMO is targeting to reduce CO2 emissions uh, across the international shipping sector by at least 40% by twenty thirteen. like you say, 70% by 2050 uh, compared to 2008 levels. Um, But just to give a bit of context, total global shipping emissions have increased from, I think it was around 977 million tonnes in 2012 to to well over a billion uh, tonnes in 2018, uh, 98% of that being CO2. Um, as a percentage of global emissions, uh, I think off the top of my head in 2018, shipping was about two and a half, almost three percent um, of the three 36.5 billion tons annually uh, globally. Um, so it might not sound like a lot, but it certainly adds to the to the carbon picture. Um, total global shipping emissions have increased uh, and need to come down Um, and they're expected to grow. Uh, So I'm sure we'll come on to a couple of other initiatives that have been uh, released recently. Uh, But without it, they're going to grow up to 100 percent, 130 percent by 2050.
0: Yeah. And very briefly to go through uh, emissions are, are growing in the sector as the shipping industry grows. And you have several avenues to reduce that. One has been through efficiency, which has yep. actually had a significant impact. So despite a 40% growth in maritime trade between 2008 and 2018, because of those Im- increases in efficiency, card emissions have actually dropped 7% in that same period. So that is one avenue to get to that target. But... It's, I think it's averaging around 1% to 2% per year since 2015. So you're never going to get to that 40%, 70% target with efficiency alone. You then have the potential of all these new fuels which are being thrown about, hydrogen, ammonia, LNG, methane, battery-powered chips, uh, new wind-powered chips, uh, which will be a, a huge part of getting us to those levels which uh, have been set. But... Uh, Another part to be able to ease that transition is, of course, what we've been talking about, these carbon emissions contracts. We could talk about those fuels and talk about the the efficiency ratings and ship designs, I think, forever on this podcast. But we're trying to keep it to fairly short. But as you said and you highlighted, there's several different things that we can use. We have outlined in terms of the EUAs, which are a European Union-based compulsory contract, which, as Theo outlined in in what he says that the leaked document this will be coming into play for two from 20 uh 23 january so that's something that's going to have to be done but there are other things which people can do right now isn't there
2: Rani? yeah i mean the the eu ets and the leaked document about shipping inevitably yeah. going to be part of it in uh, in, in 2023 it does leak quite nicely into uh, an index that the eex released uh, or spoke about last week um they're basically, released, EEX basically releasing a new zero carbon shipping index. Um, they're launching it. It goes live on the 12th of July. Um, it, essentially, it comprises both dry FFA spot rates and EU ETS spot rates uh, with the overall aim of reducing carbon emissions within a dry cargo shipping industry uh, by promoting voluntary carbon offset. So it's not a compulsory Initiative, like we mentioned earlier, with the steel mill, uh, completely voluntary, but it's getting the shipping industry ready for the inevitable um, introduction of shipping into the EU ETS. Um, So that's the reason why EEX has um, launched this index, focusing initially on the Cape Size and Panamax dry FFA market, um, and then building from there.
0: I see, and you were picking up one from the SGX of. Obviously, launched a a recent exchange themselves to deal with this kind of product.
1: Yeah, there's a a few developments uh, both here in Asia and globally. Uh, CME has been one of the drivers of of it, and uh, CME a year or so ago uh, launched the GEO, which is the Global Emissions Offset Futures Contract, Um, and that's kicked off. It hasn't had a lot of traction because I guess it was a little too generic. Um, in a lot of ways. So uh, they're actually now relaunching a NGO futures contract, which uh, pending regulatory review will launch on the 1st of August this year. And that's a nature-based global emissions offset. And that's, that will offer firms a streamlined way to meet emission reductions uh, targeting using high-quality nature-based offsets sourced exclusively from agriculture, forestry and other land-use projects. So I think this is like the next step to carbon products because the regular geo was okay but was for basic use. But we're seeing more demand from nature-based solutions. So I think this should become a lot more popular. So it's one to watch the space on. And it seems like a lot of uh, industries are backing this one, which uh, could become quite interesting. Also, SGX is also launching at the end of the year the Climate X product, which is a... It's a partnership between DBS, s itself, Standard Chartered and Tamasek. And the Climate Impact X aims aims to be a global exchange and marketplace for high-quality carbon credits. So they add that this exchange will leverage satellite monitoring, machine learning and blockchain technology to enhance the transparency, integrity and quality of carbon credits that deliver tangible and lasting environmental impacts. So there's going to be two parts. This exchange is going to be a physical side which is the project marketplace that will cater for a broader spectrum of corporate seeking to participate in the voluntary market and it'll offer them curated solutions of NCS projects that can meet their sustainable objectives. So imagine like a marketplace like you're buying a house and on that uh, marketplace there will be a number of different projects from around the region and the world and you can purchase physical actual projects um, from there. And the second part, of course, with be the exchange will facilitate that buying and selling Of large scale high quality carbon credits through standardized contracts, similar to any other contract, uh, any other commodity like the EUAs. So the the space is becoming quite interesting. It'd be amazing to imagine what we were going to be in a year's time.
0: Absolutely, very fast paced. And Alex, I don't know whether you want to do the final uh, outlining of some other schemes which are around uh, in the world as well.
2: Yeah, just to wrap up, uh, there's uh, obviously a few other ETSs that uh, are out there that we're also focusing on here at FAS. Uh, Firstly, China's uh, ETS. Obviously, we mentioned earlier they emit the most carbon globally. They launched the largest ETS in the world in February uh, on the Guangzhou Futures Exchange. Uh, This will be instrumental in meeting the country's 2060 carbon neutral goal. Um, So we'll We'll keep a close eye on this and uh, see how that develops. Uh, Secondly, the U.S. ETS is also a cap-and-trade system, exactly like the uh, EU ETS. Um, Several states and regions are basically looking to emulate the, the similar setup that California and the East Coast carbon markets have. Washington, they're looking at it. Oregon... They're looking at it. There's going to be a northeast cap and trade program to reduce their carbon output. Connecticut, Massachusetts, Columbia and Rhode Island have also committed to reducing carbon, potentially launching a a cap and trade system in 2022. Tokyo and UK have also launched their own ETS, very similar uh, to the EU ETS. Obviously, the UK breaking off from the EU ETS uh, following Brexit. So we will see how they both develop and will keep a close eye. And
0: so we've gone through our main markets updates and then focus again on carbon update. And as Theo outlined, this is a fast moving market. And to see where we'll be in a year will be very interesting indeed. But uh, we now know from the leaked document, if it is all true, that shipping is going to be included from January 2023. So if you are going into European waters or operate, Within European waters, then this is something you're going to probably have to do. So, we've tried to give a little bit of an outline briefly uh, on how it works. Um, if you need more information on that, then of course contact uh, Alex. Going forwards, we're going to be uh, outlining again if there are any other changes, we'll periodically put this uh, onto the agenda for this podcast to, to kind of highlight you, highlight to you the changes which are, are going to be happening because this is something which isn't going to go away and is only growing. So, we've seen that from that. EU ETS price um, pushing above that fifty level and now even further up. Uh, as we said, so I think in the in one of the other podcasts talking about German politics and the potentials for the Greens to take power, um, there that one of their manifesto pledges is to whack this price in the European Union carbon price up automatically to to seventy five euros. So. Could be a very interesting change towards the end of this year on those kind of matters. So we'll, we'll bring you all those things going forward. But uh, all listeners do join us again next week. And to Theo, thank you for, of course, for your your regular uh, expertise in all these markets we've been looking at. And Alex for joining us for this special emissions episode. Thank you all.